Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. As we enter into this new year, we reflect on Acton Institute's vision for a free and virtuous society. In this episode of Acton Line, Acton's librarian and research associate, Dan Huger, sits with Dylan Pommen, research fellow and executive editor of Acton's Journal of Markets and Morality, to discuss the Institute's mission and core principles. This is part one of a two-part series. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger. I'm a librarian and research associate at Acton, and I am joined by... Dylan Potman. I'm a research fellow and executive editor of the journal Marxist Morality, and uh, we're your hosts for today, and we're going to be talking about uh, Acton's mission and Acton's synthesis of faith and freedom, ethics and economics, and religion and liberty. So when I was hired by the Acton Institute many moons ago, I was excited I called my dad and I said, hey, I got a job offer from the Acton Institute. And his response was, oh, do they do stuff with Broadway Grand Rapids? Because he heard the Acton Institute. <laughs> and I told him, I said, I said, no, no, it's a, it's a nonprofit educational organization, you know, uh, specializing in religion and free market economics. And then he goes, okay. <laughs> He says, then why is it called the Acton Institute? And I said, well, Acton's this 19th century British historian, and he has all these ideas on the history of liberty. And, you know, I just did the, I just did the brain dump, the initial excited brain dump. And my dad was still puzzled. Um, and the Acton Institute, you know, like we have a mission. And that mission is that the Acton Institute is a think tank whose mission is to promote a free and virtuous society – characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. And we're going to dive into sort of unpacking that and what that means in the life of the Institute and what that means in terms of ideas and our approach to, uh, to all sorts of things, to religion and economics. So I always my, – my elevator pitch is usually I go with – it's not even like our mission statement, but it's our tagline. It's, it's – Uniting good intentions and sound economics. Uh, and I try to give the, well, you know, on, on the one hand, there are um, business people and other practitioners who may be very devout in their faith, whether it's, you know, Christian or otherwise, but, uh, you know, so they go to church, they maybe even donate, that sort of thing. But the other six days of the week, you know, they don't really see what the connection is, right? doesn't mean that they're bad people, but but having an overarching framework that unites, you know, work and worship uh, isn't necessarily there. On the other hand, um, speaking as someone who actually did go to seminary myself, although I, I did so for academic purposes, uh, a lot of ministers, um, and for that matter, a lot of ethicists and moral philosophers and whatnot, uh, don't receive any economic training whatsoever, don't have much exposure to the business world, um, to markets. Uh, and so often, you know, while they may care very deeply about issues like wealth and poverty and inequality and all of this, um, they can end up saying some some really kind of uh, unfortunate and uh, simplifying, uh, oversimplifying, I should say, uh, things to the point where they end up alienating, uh, you know, some of the people in the first group. And so, uh, you know, Acton was created to kind of bring these people together. Uh, to get them talking because, uh, you know, the people in the best position to help the poor happen to be the wealthy. Um, and and we should, you know, not be afraid uh, to look into these sorts of things and to add a bit of nuance uh, to these discussions, uh, to add a bit of perhaps obligation, duty, and responsibility as well. Um, and and that, so that's why acting exists. So that's like my my little pitch um, but that doesn't really get at the, well, how do we do that? Yeah, right? because 
What you're talking about is building a network, which is something that, yep. that we love to do. And I love to say this. I said, you know, Acton is an institution and it's a network of people mm-hmm. with similar interests. But Acton's contribution, like in terms of ideas, is, is like bringing people together. It's also a synthetic one in bringing ideas together. And the synthesis between religion and free market economics, as well as sort of an integrated approach to social, economic, and political problems. And that's because a lot of the challenges we face in the world, a lot of the social crises of our time are the products of conflicts within the human person and choosing in groups, which we do not only in in politics. You know, Barack Obama once famously said that politics is our word for, you know, what we do when we get together. But there are all sorts of other contexts in which we get together in family and community, in church and in business. And, And in all of these actions of choosing, you know, human action itself is sort of constrained by a logic of choice and a reality of scarcity. And this is where the economics comes in. And I think religion provides the necessary technology of sort of self-government, which makes human flourishing possible. It provides sort of the social norms necessary for social cooperation under the division of labor. And it contains, it constrains the state to make a genuine sort of non-totalitarian politics possible where human rights, property rights, and the rights of conscience are protected. Now, that's, that's big. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my big sort of, sort of selling sort of the intellectual tradition or the line of the sort of invitation to inquiry that Acton invites. Yeah, I think along those lines, there, there's just this fundamental conviction that we need each other. I mean, this is true broadly in society, but this is also true intellectually. Um, I think of, I'm going to just paraphrase it, a quote from uh, the former Pope Benedict XVI uh, when he was Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger uh, before he was Pope, uh, that uh, uh, morality that thinks it can dispense with technical economic reasoning is not morality but moralism. And economics that thinks it can dispense with morality is Economism, right? It's scientism, um, and it's it's kind of missing uh, the the hinge that brings these things together. I think, uh, especially of uh, the economist Frank Knight's uh, statement that without an adequate ethics and sociology in a broad sense, economics has little to say about policy. Um, and I think all of us, and you know, the average person even is well aware that economists have a lot to say about policy, at least in the news. Uh, you know, on 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 TV and on radio and on the internet. Um, The question is, well, what moral framework is this coming from? How do I even evaluate when anybody says? How do do we determine what's wise and what's not? Um, How do we determine whose place it is, uh, whose competence to to offer the the expertise? Um, And at Acton, on the one hand, we have uh, some broad agreements. Uh, we, we stand in the classical liberal tradition. Uh, you can find um, just an abundance of quotes uh, from American founding fathers, from people like John Milton or Edmund Burke and you know, Britain and all over of the idea that liberty and virtue are uh, mutually dependent, that you can have uh, a free society if you have virtuous people. And if you have virtuous people, you can have a free society. But you can't just have one or the other, right, um, on their own. Otherwise, they, they, it ends up not working, right? If you, if you uh, say, well, we're going to make everybody virtuous through law, you don't allow for freedom, you actually are stunting moral development. Um, on the other hand, uh, if you say, well, we're just going to let anybody do anything they want and we're going to trust them to be responsible, um, that would be great if everybody was perfectly virtuous, but nobody is. Uh, and so there, there's always a sort of middle ground. Uh, and then how that gets worked out uh, depends a lot on people's different, uh, whether religious tradition, moral uh, theories that they may favor, or even you know economic school of thought. Yeah. So Lord Acton uh, said once that, that religion and political economy rule the world, um, on the one hand, it's it's about what uh, what in, what men value in this world, and then what men value in the next, mm-hmm. um, and that gets to sort of like a fundamental question of where do the desires, the drives, where does the the challenges of being human like 
Like, how do they manifest themselves? And what is what is this human person? Because we can't talk about these issues without the context of the human person. And you have a very handy definition of the human person. Right, yes. Uh, so in my book, uh, I summarize it this way, drawing from uh, the Christian tradition uh, and uh, – well, primarily, I should just say that. Uh, human beings are created in the image of God as rational, social animals created for virtue but fallen into sin and vice. That is, that is a very traditional – Christian understanding, but all of those terms have very specific meanings, right? Uh, so we're creating the image of God. We have an inherent dignity um, and responsibility that comes with that and freedom as well. Um, we are social. We are not created, you know, no man is Robinson Crusoe. We're, we're created uh, to live in community with one another. Uh, God made Adam in the garden and said, it is not good for man to be alone. This is after, you know, this is right after the story where there's six days of creation and God is constantly saying, hey, this is good, this is good, this is good. Everything he makes is good until he makes a single solitary human person. This is not good. Uh, it's human, very good. Well, okay, it's very good, but that's, it says <laughs> male and female. So yes. that's, that's a, a summary statement, right? That's mm-hmm. assuming human community, whereas in uh, Genesis 2, you get a more specific um, elaboration on, on the process there. Uh, so there's, you know, Aristotle would say that man is a political animal. It kind of comes from that a little bit as well. Um, and then we're made for virtue. So we're not simply made to, to exist, but there's, there's a way of human existence that corresponds with human flourishing. That is not simply a matter of let's all just do what we want or make it up as we go. There are, you know, there's such a thing as natural law. There's such a thing as human nature. Um, and we can make choices uh, and act in accordance with that or against that. And there are natural consequences. As much as, you know, people talk in terms of um, either legal consequences, which is an important discussion to have, what should be illegal, what shouldn't, what should be punished, what should be uh, allowed. Um, you can also think in, you know, very religious uh, kind of other world sense of, you know, heaven and hell level stuff, but there's also even just a day-to-day. You know, if, if you presume natural law, you presume that people have a conscience, right? And that no matter what the circumstance, no matter what uh, the answer to those other questions, there's going to be immediate consequences internally within a person's soul uh, when they either violate their nature or act in accordance with it. There's going to be joy or there's going to be regret, right? Uh, Assuming a person's conscience is properly functioning, Uh, which gets me to the last point of sin, uh, that there's a fundamental conviction that though God is providentially caring for us, though in the plan of salvation, there's a way for us to uh, find uh, restoration and uh, to what we were meant to be. Uh, at the same time, this world is not as it should be. Uh, there are some problems that are just bigger than any human being can possibly solve. Uh, we need grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to start with those convictions, I think, at a, as a bare minimum. I mean, there's probably all sorts of other specifics we could get into. But, um, but I think if you start there, well, then suddenly... There's a lot of things that as you explore these definitions and the implications, um, you you start to get into all different areas, including economics. So, you know, I mentioned the story of the garden. Well, God makes Adam, or the first man, uh, to till the ground, to, to literally cultivate the resources of the earth to bear fruit. Mm-hmm. That is what economics is all about. In fact, specifically to bear fruit for other human beings. Um so there, it's not as if these two fields are so distant from one another. As, as much as we like to kind of privatize religion or make economic uh, extremely technical or mathematized uh, endeavor, uh, the reality is that everybody's got a job. You know, everybody, everybody's got a, got a family they got to support, um, or at least they're a part of a family that relies on their efforts. Um, and to this extent, uh, both of these things are everyday realities, that, that we're dependent upon God to sustain us. Uh, we're dependent upon our faith. We're constantly confronted with moral choices and consequences. At the same time, we have material needs that also need to be satisfied. I think that way of thinking about the human person is also interesting because you can develop sort of a, 
a sort of an anthropology of religion from it as well. Mm-hmm. Because man being created in the image of God, religion is there to remind man of that, of part of this is worship. Part of this is, you know, when we we're talking about virtue and what the good life is, part of what religion does is instruct us in and help form us in that good life. And there's also the reality of sin. And religion provides us a way to become whole, to be redeemed, to be renewed, and offers um, a sort of transformative power to move beyond that in the world. Um, You may fall again and again and again, but religion is there to affirm that image-bearing and to restore that. Um, so that's, that's just a, an, interesting, an interesting overlap there. What do you think of – I mean when we talk about – we could talk about a particular biblical theology in terms of religion. But there, there are broad varieties of religious traditions, all of which provide some sort of avenue towards this self-governance that um, is necessary for living our lives together. How do you think about religion in this, in this, in this more general way? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, with the conviction that everyone is to some degree religious, you know, even a person who might be, you know, an atheist in terms of, oh, I don't believe in God or I don't attend any kind of church or temple or anything like that, um, but there's still a question of most people have something transcendent for which they live or what which they revere, right? Um, now, there can be all sorts of corruption to that. Again, we live in a world affected by sin and death and corruption. Um, so, again, I think it gets back to that natural law question. Um, there are some religions in the history of humankind that are actually not compatible with liberty. Um, I don't think, uh, I mean, maybe it's not politically correct to say that, but, you know, things like human sacrifice, I guess you can organize them, uh, but... Hard to have that human dignity yeah, when right, the, uh, exactly. it's, on the pile of skulls. Right. So there's, there's, there's limits, and those limits are some basic kind of Ten Commandments uh, morality. Do not, you know, murder, do not steal, do not lie or at least uh, defraud or com- commit false witness. Um, and these things are actually pretty transcendent. You can find them in almost any major religion today, uh, which is good news. I mean, it, that to me, more than anything, uh, really makes religious liberty um, possible. It makes a religiously pluralistic society, not in the sense of, oh, all roads lead to the same end, but in the sense of, hey, I can live next door to someone who may have very radically different convictions or commitments than me, and we can be at peace. And in fact, we can be neighbors. We can be part of a community. Because there's that, um, and this is where Protestants might get nervous, but this is the language that moral theologians in the Catholic tradition will use natural law. Mm-hmm. Also, much of early Protestantism yep. uses natural yep. law. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, we have a publish a book in our Sources of Early Modern Ethics, Economics, and Law by Niels Hemmingson, a Lutheran theologian, where he goes through and he says, on the law of nature, a demonstrative method. And mm-hmm. what is it? It's a study of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis, also in Mere Christianity, um, talks about this. He uses the language of the Tao mm-hmm. to talk about this. So there is this moral law that can be known by natural reason. And this is something that is known and celebrated in many religious traditions. Mm -hmm. But there are some religious traditions that are are hesitant about it. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you make of that in terms of a pluralistic society? Is it – do you have to have a self-conscious – sort of commitment to natural law? Yeah, so I guess I would answer that in a a few different ways. I mean, first of all, um, the natural law exists whether anyone acknowledges it or not. Um, That's that's fundamental to the idea of it. Again, it is about reason in terms of our how we come to know it, but it's just as much about conscience, which is more of an intuition. Um, And 
And it's something that people, you know, you you can sear your conscience. We see that language in scripture and tradition. You know, there are ways in which you can corrupt your own conscience. But generally speaking, people don't choose to say regret or be ashamed of something. They are shamed or they come to regret, right? It's something that they they just, they see, oh, I shouldn't have done that, right? I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. Whatever the, the case may be, there's something in our inner mechanics or circuitry or whatever metaphor you want to use that just sets some kind of limit. Um, now, you know, again, like whole societies uh, have ignored those sorts of things uh, at times. It's not to say that this is, uh, you know, never something that can be transgressed, but it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that would be my first response. So people don't need to fully assent to it in a theoretical sense for it to be out there. The second one I would say is, a lot of people may have the conviction that, look, I believe the Ten Commandments or I follow the Ten Commandments because God said so. That's the whole point. Like God spoke to Moses and engraved these on tablets, right? That's the story. And that is the story. They're not wrong about that. There, There is a, a sense in which this is there's a special revelation of it that uh, Christians and, and Jews, for that matter, believe to be superior to, you know, any pure, purely natural knowledge of it. Um, I think that's fine. I just don't think that's incompatible uh, with the idea that I can live peacefully with my neighbor of a different religion. Um, I, I think as long as they have some acknowledgement and respect for those basic moral tenets, that gives us space for freedom. It, it, again, it, to get back to our, our initial discussion, as long as you have that basic level of virtue, uh, you can, it, it makes that freedom possible. So St. Paul uses the language of the – this is the law that's written in the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where it convicts Mm -hmm. a lot of the time is in the heart. Um, There's also a famous uh, story about Niels Bohr where Niels Bohr is sitting at home and he's a famous physicist and he has a a student guest come to visit him. And he sees he's got a horseshoe above his doorway. And the student's kind of shocked because, you know, Niels Bohr is this physicist and he goes, he goes, you know, you don't actually believe this, that, you know, the horseshoe above the door brings your house luck, protects your home, all this. And he says, Niels Bohr says, no, of course not. But I'm told it works even if you don't believe it. <laughs> so there's a sense mm-hmm. in which conscience works as a witness in a day-to-day way that even if you theoretically reject natural law, everybody has an experience of this. Um, and you have a lot of thinkers, and this is kind of bring us around to economics. You know, uh, you know, David Hume talked about very secular yeah. moral philosopher, skeptic in a lot of ways, but talked about how sort of like a free society is based on notions of private property, contract, and consent. And these things are only operable in a society in which people restrain themselves, govern themselves, are convicted in some way for honoring private property, honoring contracts, respecting the wishes and autonomy of others. So as we're going through life, as we're facing all of the sort of challenges we have of getting, of spending, of providing for family, of supporting others, of supporting and improving ourselves, we enter this larger social sphere under the division of labor, which is necessary. Paul Hain has a great comment and he talks about, you know, religious people need to be concerned about economics as long as church pews, kneelers, even the Bibles. Ele- Bibles, all of the elements of worship themselves need human cooperation. Worship is a, is a, is a cooperative activity itself. Um, so how do – how can sound economic analysis help us meet those religious obligations, duties in, in, in our various contexts? How would you answer that? So my way of thinking about it is economics is about constraints. And we have all of these various commandments, obligations, duties to ourselves, to our neighbors, to our families. I can be granted a vision of what the good life is 
actualizing the good life requires choices under uncertainty and choices under constraints. And there I think economics can help us think through that. And it can help us think through, okay, how is it that I can enlist the cooperation of others, others who might not even share my vision of the good life, but how can I enlist their cooperation in a way that makes the world a better place, in a way in which um, I can actually begin to affect in a positive way my own environment, that of my community. Um, so that's the very general. Now, economics is a general set of sort of like analytical lenses. Like economics cannot tell you sell everything you own. <laughs> right. Um, Jesus which can is a tell different, you that. Which is a very right. different and which is a different sort of um, – it's a different sort of law. It's a higher law than the natural law, which I, th I tend to think economics is more analogous to natural law in moral philosophy than the counsels of perfection. Yeah. So I think of – and I would agree with you for, for the most part there. I, I, I think economics began with Adam Smith, at least modern economics, and not that no one ever thought about these things before. But modern economics began with Adam Smith. He was a moral philosopher. Back then, what he was doing was, in fact, considered like natural theology, right? He was looking at how God works in nature, right? There was a longstanding Christian conviction that God has revealed himself both through scripture and depending on your tradition, perhaps through tradi Christian tradition, but also through the natural world, uh, that the heavens declare the glory, glory of God, as the Psalms say, uh, that we can study the world and see something of the workings of God. And if you believe that humanity has a nature uh, and therefore some kind of constraints, some kind of definition. It's not just this black box that can become anything we want it to be, uh, but there are limits. Uh, well, then studying human choice uh, in particular, uh, as Robbins put it, human choice under conditions of scarcity for the sake of limited ends, uh, which often may be things involve buying and selling and money, but he talked about, well, you know, if you want to study both mathematics and philosophy, but you only got time to study one or the other, that's still an economic decision, right? You're going to economize on your time, your limited resource for a limited end, either mathematics or philosophy. Um, so it's it's a little bit broader than maybe a lot of people think. Um, but to that extent, yes, it's, it's I think, has a, a natural law foundation, um, or at least that's the perspective that we share here at Acton, that... Uh, it's not just a matter of, well, we want to make this happen, and so we're going to either enact a law or policy, or we're going to in some way try to force this square peg into this round hole. And we say, no, only round pegs are going to go in the round hole, and that's going to limit what we can do with policy. Um, and that's going to hopefully get us to look elsewhere. And one of those ways, uh, one of those those areas is things that go beyond the bare minimum, right? You know, I talked about this bare minimum that we need in order to be neighbors with people of very different uh, religion, but it can be true of any, you know, I should be able to be neighbor of, with uh, somebody of a different political party or disposition than me, I think, uh, as long as they have a certain base level of human decency, of uh, love for neighbor. Um, but there's there there are things unique to the gospel and to the, the Christian faith uh, they go far beyond that. You know, when Christ said, uh, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, turn the other cheek, right? Love your neighbor. Um, he wasn't saying that the, the, the first standard was bad, right? That, he was quoting himself, right? He's, he's yeah. God, right? He's, <laughs> yeah. It's from the Old Testament. That's where it comes from. It wasn't bad. That was justice. That was just basic, you know, proportional justice. It, in fact, was a restraint on people going extreme uh, in terms of punishment and retribution and vengeance. Um, but he was saying there's, there's something higher still. There's a higher way to, to live and to love one another. Um, and that's something that uh, is going to be different depending on a, a different person's uh, position in life. You know, I joked uh, a little bit about, uh, you know, Jesus can call somebody to give away everything they have. Well, yeah, there, there are some people who decide to be monks, 
for mm-hmm. example. Um, there's some people who devote their lives, you know, to missions work and, and other sorts of things where they're, I mean, we work at a nonprofit association. Technically, we've sort of done that. I mean, we have private property that we own, of course, in our personal lives, but we're dependent upon the generosity of others for our salaries. Um, but that's not, it's not for everybody. And it's okay that that's not for everybody. The people donating are not themselves subsisting off of donations. They're, they're creating wealth, uh, and then they're sharing that with causes that they care about. Um, and, you know, I am not a monk. I have a family I need to provide for. I have uh, all sorts of possessions that it's not greedy for me to want or have. Uh, it's, in fact, caring. Um, one of the, the – uh, I can't remember where I heard this, but um, the most primary uh, group of the poor and the needy that I take care of on a daily basis are my four kids, right? Because left on their own, uh, they're nine, four, two, and one. Uh, Left on their own, they would not survive, right? Like, so I'm constantly giving to them and expecting nothing in return. Or, well, I'm hoping eventually they're responsible adults. So, you know, long-term, there may be an exchange involved. But in the day-to-day, you know, workings of our family, um, it's, it's hopefully about love and that requires having a, a home that is, uh, you know, sufficient for our needs and, and to have food in our cupboards and all that sort of thing. Uh, so there are different degrees of this, and it's going to look different uh, based on who a person is. Um, and it's going to depend a lot on on prayer and discernment, on listening to that call of Christ. Uh, for some people, it may involve selling everything. And I think maybe people are a little too quick to presume that it, that's not them. Um, and maybe the world is missing out um, because of that. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there, there are all sorts of instances. I think of Zacchaeus, uh, also a story in the Gospels. He's a tax collector. Uh, it was actually kind of meant more middle class, but maybe he was on the upper end of that in the ancient world. There wasn't much of a middle class at the time. Um, and they were known for perhaps uh, sometimes taking more than they were instructed to take. And people already resented all the tax collectors, at least in Judea, because uh, they were taking money on behalf of the Romans who are occupying this native land of the Jewish people. Um, Well, he wants to see Jesus. He climbs up a tree. Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house, right? We all know the song and remember from Sunday school, whatever. He goes there and Zacchaeus hosts him in his house. He says, see, Lord, today I've given away half of all that I have. Not everything, half. And if if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay him back four times, right? So he repents. He's trying to right any way he's wronged. And he's been extremely generous. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, whoa, Zacchaeus, I said, give away everything. No, he says, today salvation has come to this house. That is, that is the quote, right? So people are different. What that looks like, what it looks like to follow Jesus depends on one's vocation. It's going to look different between different people. And, and uh, we shouldn't expect a one-size-fits-all condition uh, that rises to the level of law uh, in the same way. So this is this is one of the one of the key points of what I think Akin does really good is integrating or really well. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do grammar good. We don't do grammar good. <laughs> but when we're talking about these things in a way that centers the human person, which focuses on the religious nature of the person, which is grounded in sound economic analysis, and it also isn't reductionistic. It's a question of pairing those duties, that ought, with what is in the world in our concrete circumstances. In realizing that there's some liberty of conscience there, there's going to be some different ways that works out into the world. So it's not merely a moralism that tells people what to do. It's also not merely an economism that says, if it feels good, do it. Maximize your utility. But it brings these things together in a synthetic way, in a way that um, that betters the witness of individuals in their communities. So one of the things that's interesting, going back to the very beginning with our mission statement, um, is that economics isn't mentioned in it. And it's a major part of what we do. What are some of the key sort of economic issues, thinkers, schools, challenges? Like where does economics as an academic discipline, as a method of inquiry, 
as a sort of like uh, applied study in life. How does that how does that come in for you, Dylan? So for me, and you know, to speak in very very general terms, you know, we've seen a lot of political polarization, realignment, whatever you want to call it, in the last few years. And as much as I I have sympathies, you know, on a certain end of the political spectrum, I've come to see that. Uh, for me, the greater divide is between uh, liberal and illiberal points of view in the world. Um, and there are versions of that on the right and there are versions of that on the left. Uh, to speak in very general terms, a, a liberal in, in this classical sense, not, not, and just not to mean shorthand for the political left in America as the term is often used, but just in, in a more classical sense is to say that the solution to the problem of pluralism in society is liberty. Right. So we have a lot of different people with a lot of different convictions, a lot of different ideas. And the way in which we solve that in a modern democratic republic is through freedom. Uh, It's not without any restraints. Again, you know, virtue is key. Law is even key. Um, But there's there's liberty. You have freedom to own and to develop and to work. You also have a say in your political system. You can vote. Um, You can write your senator or representative. Um, There's all sorts of ways in which every citizen uh, can be involved and and hopefully will be uh, to the extent that there's an issue they care about. Um, So I think those those are kind of the, the, the biggest things. And what economics helps us do is it is a way of thinking about how do people behave under those conditions, right? So there are, of course, studies of the effects of regulation and restriction and that sort of thing. But there's a lot just to be said about, okay, if, you know, just take a market that's fairly unregulated, uh, something like video games. Uh, Well, what happens is a few different companies uh, make their systems. A bunch of different companies make different games. There's a general price point that all the games more or less settle on. Uh, you know, if it's a, a really – if it's a game that's going to have a lot of hours of input, it, maybe it's around 50 bucks, something like that. If it's more kind of a, hey, play this uh, on your lunch break sort of thing, it might be 5 10 20 bucks, whatever. But through competition, because there's just so many options out there, the prices get driven down. And that's not just about money. That's about what people do with their resources, with the resources of the earth, with the, the fruit of their labors. Um, if they're interested in something like a video game, which we could, that could be a whole different podcast of, you know, <laughs> how to engage that from a, a moral, Christian, whatever, uh, classical, liberal point of view. But let's just say this is something that someone is interested in, uh, and it's, uh, we'll just say morally neutral for now. Um, well, how are they going to manage the resources? I mean, again, I have kids I got to feed. I got a house payment I got to make. I got a car payment, you know, all those sorts of things. Well, maybe I only have so much money for things that help me relax. And it's okay to, to relax sometimes, right? Um, well, we can do this uh, through a state-owned company <laughs> that, that makes everything. We could do it in an extremely restricted market where there's maybe one or two very privileged companies uh, that face very little competition, in which case they can charge whatever prices they want. You, you approach kind of monopoly conditions. Um, there are very predictable things that very often happen uh, that can be studied and understood, and again, predicted if one has a basic understanding of economic science. And so that's that's the role uh, that I, where I think it comes in, in terms of, okay, if, if we value liberty, um, we got to know how it works, right? If we, if, if we want to use liberty for moral ends, which I hope we do, we got to know how it works. And economics helps us understand how it works. So... What was very interesting in your answer, which is very, very Acton-esque, which you wouldn't necessarily get in another context in which somebody's trying to sell an audience on free market economics for, let's say, efficiency's sake or sure. let's say a profit maximization uh, outlet or um, just, a, just a general we produce more stuff this way. Right. Is that all of this is embedded – and a lot of this goes back to those early economists, not only to Adam Smith, but back to earlier, sure. early modern traditions in economic analysis, both Catholic and Protestant thinkers, 
that they see this stuff in the world. They see that people are finding ways to interact with their environment, to exchange with each other, and that's generating prosperity. And they then reflect, okay, like, like what do we make of this? Like under what conditions should contracts be honored? Under what conditions should private property be allowed? What is the nature of uh, money? <laughs> I mean, you, very early on, you right. have these discussions. And it's important to talk about this in an embedded way in political economy. Because as the Nobel laureate Friedrich Hayek once warned, that the economist who is only an economist is likely to become a nuisance, if not a positive danger. And that our project here is a holistic one involving intersecting and interdependent spheres for you Kuyperians out there <laughs> that to be fully appreciated and understood must be examined in their economic, social, and moral dimensions and that the combined commitments to this sort of mainline economic analysis – and we can get into sort of particular economic theory and methodology, but there's a sort of general consensus. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's surprisingly more agreement than I think – people who haven't studied it realized, right? Like there are left-wing economists and right-wing economists who would agree on 20 major points, yeah. right? So, you know, in my, in my work, I tend to focus on the more basic stuff. I care about the, the more intricate uh, details, and I love having those discussions and debates, and you and I disagree all the time <laughs> on some of yeah. those sorts of things. Uh, but but there's, there's just a, kind of a general level uh, that I think um, – it's just a matter of public education that we got we got to do a better job uh, at understanding this for moral ends because it, it helps us live better lives. It helps us flourish together better. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why we should care about it at the end of the day. And these are the basic sort of like microeconomic insights. These yeah. are like, you know, free trade, gains from trade. Mm -hmm. uh, price controls is counterproductive mm -hmm. as causing – Shortages, the very things that they're trying to uh, to escape. You know, they're anybody trying to, who tried to purchase uh, toilet paper about a year ago, yes, has <laughs> encountered the results of yeah. what happens when you try to freeze prices, ostensibly mm -hmm. for good reasons. And the people who did that didn't want there to be shortages, right? No. They wanted to protect consumers. The problem was what they ended up doing was a disservice to consumers because people couldn't even consume the product at all because they couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, there there are things that happen because. Human beings, again, have natures and there, there are constraints to our behavior uh, that no policy is going to change. That They just simply are part of human existence. They're part of life as we live it. Uh, and prudent policy takes that as a starting point uh, rather than trying to you know, push it aside mm -hmm. or remake it. So when we talk about remaking it, when we talk about ignoring those sort of fundamental things in human nature, what are sort of the, the, the sort of real-world consequences of that? Well, I mean, they can be as minor as – not that it wasn't a big deal, but as minor as shortages of toilet paper. Yeah, right? having to go to three stores before you find some. Right. Uh, they can be as major as things like – and the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union, you know, trying to to purge away undesirable people because there was no assumption that all human beings have equal and inherent dignity. Um, and in fact, there was furthermore an assumption that human beings can be made into whatever this in that case, once they came to power, the state wanted them to be. Um, it 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 badly injured just amazing cultures. And, you know, that all across Eastern Europe, these you know, long-standing generations uh, of people, of generally Christian people, also uh, Muslim and Jewish uh, backgrounds and others, but uh, they'd created this these amazing civilizations and a regime came to power that just tried to erase all of that and tried to make a new man uh, that, you know, ironically would, would be truly equal while at the same time, not at all treating all human beings equal uh, in the process of trying to get there. Um, and the level of human suffering is in the millions in terms of deaths. And 
all kinds of, of worse things in terms of gulags and imprisonments and uh, torture, brainwashing. I mean, there are stories, uh, you know, you can go on and on and on if you really want to dig down that rabbit hole, which is pretty depressing, so I don't really recommend it. But, uh, but, it, but it happened, and it's, you know, you can find similar sort of thing on the right. If you want to look at, you know, fascism and, you know, uh, Nazism, definitely did not presume all people were created equal under God uh, in God's image. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, and usually the results uh, when when it's taken to that extreme are catastrophic and, and tragic. So on, on the very harmless side, um, most of the time, thankfully, it's stuff like Hey, we want to protect consumers, and we're going to set prices. And we, oh no, what happened? Why, why don't we have enough toilet paper? Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as that was dumb, and I didn't like it, I even wrote a post about it at the time, a blog post. Um, it, it's it's not a tragedy. It's not you know it wasn't an atrocity or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the good news. Uh, usually, it's well-intentioned people. They're not really trying to remake humanity exactly, but they're just ignoring. Uh, they're presuming changeable what, in fact, is unchangeable. This gets very interesting because Karl Marx was an economist. Yeah. Yep. You have – and part of this has to do with there's, – there's, there's a divide in the economics profession that goes back a very long time is, is the economist an engineer? Is the economist someone that we enlist to develop production quotas? Is the economist the person who tells us, you know – how to efficiently, you know, most efficiently produce something? Is the economist someone that, you know, uh, engineers the economy? Or is the economist someone who examines the economy? And this is where you have, you know, Adam Smith's, you know, famous book is an inquiry into the causes. Right. It's not a recipe for wealth. It is an examination of, okay, how does this free society function? One of the things that he's noticing is there's this tremendous economic growth. There's this development. So economics can help us understand that. Economics can help us appreciate that. Economics can help us avoid pitfalls of restrictions. But there's also a way in which economics can be dangerous if it is – if everything is reduced to that. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, the – Discipline was originally referred to as political economy, uh, the presumption being that uh, this would be a sort of academic uh, enterprise that would advise policymakers, right? And so early economists like Smith, like Malthus, like Waitley um, and Mill and others, they were looking at you know, market exchanges, but they're also looking at things like the family and education and all these other sorts of spheres and institutions of social life. Uh, and they understood that all of these things are working together, that, you you know, as much as they may still have fallen into uh, occasionally uh, overly economizing issues, um, they generally saw themselves as part of a larger whole rather than trying to uh, maybe dissect or you know separate themselves from other sciences. In the case of you know, the 20th century, you get somebody like Gary Becker who basically just wants to. Re- although he does it, he acknowledges actually some non-economic motivations in our lives. He still kind of very much wanted to uh, reduce everything to economics and use economics to ana- analyze everything, um, and that can that can be disastrous even when well-intended. That can be disastrous even when done well, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're just, you know, yes, we we uh, need our daily bread, but we, we need so much more than that. Uh, as the scripture says, man does not live by bread alone, right? Um, there, it never says we live without bread, uh, as one of my favorite philosophers, uh, Vladimir Slovyov, points out. So economics matters, um, but it's not ultimate, um, there are greater things. Um, so there's always that tension uh, as well. Yeah. Wilhelm Rupke put it this way. He said, man can wholly fulfill his nature only by freely becoming part of a community and having a sense of solidarity with it. Otherwise, he leads a miserable existence and he knows it. And this gets back to, you know, a stable, prosperous and dynamic market economy is only possible when free persons guided by their conscience are animated by a transcendent sense of purpose, receive moral formation in the family and community, and are protected by the rule of law. Um, All of this was part of that 
science in the yes. liberal tradition. Mm-hmm. All of this, all of this was a total package. And one of the things we've tragically lost, beginning with some folks in the 19th century, yep. getting more aggressive into the 20th, and we'll see how the 21st science turns out is divorcing those things, Mm -hmm. is losing that memory. And that's part of our task at the Acton Institute is to like keep that memory alive, keep that synthesis in the forefront of people's minds. Absolutely. I think that's just an excellent place to conclude. Uh, I I wholeheartedly agree. And the good news is there have been people uh, all throughout history and even all throughout modern history and throughout the history of modern economics, if we want to be very specific, who have tried to do that. So uh, no one has to start over from scratch. Uh, there are an abundance of resources uh, for people to draw from. And uh, I am abundantly grateful that it's part of my job to help them find them and, and uh, figure out how that looks within their own tradition and in their own lives. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank um, you, Dan. I think we're going to do something, a follow-up, where we, we, got, we got a little heady here with like big pictures, sort of pictures of the synthesis. And maybe next time we get together, we'll do uh, talk about some particular issues and some particular ways you can bring this synthetic understanding that we try to foster to sort of issues of the day, current social problems. But I'm looking forward to it. Sounds good. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.